Welcome to the Hero Hut Podcast, bringing you stories of service. On this episode, we'll take to the skies for a discussion with Army helicopter pilot Joshua Lee, as well as highlight another one of our partner organizations, RTAG, which helps veterans find careers in commercial aviation. And now I'll turn it over to our host, Jacob Hagstrom. I'm joined by Joshua Lee, who is a current reservist in the Army, former active duty Army pilot, and also a member of Rotary 2 Airline Group, or RTAG. Welcome, Josh. Hey, how's it going? Welcome, man. Going well. Uh, So I want to jump right into it and ask you about your decision to join the military. I know a lot of kids grow up, some of them want to be pilots, some of them want to be soldiers. Which one did you decide on first? Uh, Mine's a little bit, I guess that's a a little non-standard. I actually, both my parents are retired Air Force. And uh, I remember distinctly having a not so two-sided conversation with my dad in probably amongst a, a fight of some sort, you know, an argument saying, I'm never going to join the military, you know, I'm not going to be anything like you. And uh, I grew up either wanted to fly or play hockey for a living and uh, found myself, found myself uh, in love with the greatest woman in the world and getting ready to get married. I'm like, man, I can't provide for her <laughs> doing what I'm doing now. So I actually joined the Air Force with the desire to fly. And um, in 2005, the Air Force decided to get rid of 5,500 lieutenants because they wanted to buy the F-22. And um, I, in a conversation with my dad, he said, hey, the, the Army has this awesome thing called a warrant officer, and all they do is fly. And uh, so I researched it, put in to fly as a warrant officer, and got picked up on the first first look and came, came right over. And so that's kind of, I guess, my journey. I, as soon as I joined the military, I really actually loved it. I, I, I liked the Air Force and then the Army. Obviously, being a warrant officer in the Army was incredible. It has been incredible. I'm definitely glad I made the decision. But mostly to fly was my original thing. And I just kind of fell into the, the Army portion of it pretty well. Right. So it does sound like flying was that the main motivator. And you mentioned your parents were both in the Air Force. Did they fly as well? Or what were their jobs in the Air Force? Uh, no, they were both uh, logistics. And so they did. Uh, they came in. My dad actually had, was set up for OCS and flight school um, right before Vietnam kicked off. And obviously, we all know how that went. Um, and so there was a lot of flying again. Um, we're from Alaska, so a lot of flying on the side, um, just not military side. So, yeah, both my parents were logistics, uh, chief of logistics for Alaska Air Command and 11th Air Force up in Alaska. So Interesting. So you tr- make that transition from the Air Force to the Army in 2005. Uh, had you been deployed in the Air Force? Were you concerned about getting deployed more uh, frequently in the Army? Or how did that uh, factor into your decision? I actually... I actually volunteered, uh, I volunteered several times in the Air Force um, to to deploy and um, was actually looking into going into special operations crew in the Air Force if I couldn't fly. Um, Because I really, I really wanted to fly, but I was looking as well in the combat control career fields. And um, I guess kind of through the conversations of with my dad and my wife, learning about the, the helicopter flying portions. Um, no, I really wanted to, to deploy. That was the thing is if I was going to be in the military, I really wanted to be in a position to serve. But as some of us, you know, how the Air Force works is pretty funny. But, you know, there it was one of those. We don't just deploy that often unless you're in one of those, uh, you know, even the aviators don't deploy that often. And they do for, for four or five months. And for me, I had just designed a fix for a wire bundle issue in uh, F-16s. 
at like a depot level maintenance setup and they i was too valuable quote unquote to uh let me go to iraq for you know a few months so i, I just couldn't get on deployment uh and no i wasn't worried about deploying at all that was something we talked about in the army you know going to the army obviously i'm going to deploy we're going to do that stuff and um it was it was definitely a piece that we worked really we talked quite a bit about with my wife and our family at the time um but yeah, not, nothing we were concerned about, just kind of that desire to actually go and do it was, was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned that, again, you transitioned from the Air Force to the Army in 2005. So how much time did you spend in the Air Force? Uh, four years. So I did what, four, what was four going years. on in your life when you decided to join the Air Force at that time? So you said, oh, you were uh, you just gotten married or you were thinking you were playing hockey and what was going on then? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was, um, actually I was my job. I was the youth and music director for uh, Southern Baptist church there locally making a whopping, I think $600 a month. And, uh, you know, I was uh, 19 or 20 right around there. And it was pretty, I, I don't know if it was as funny to everybody else, but when I realized I had to, uh, figure out a way to provide for, you know, my new family coming up, I just went and joined, and I didn't really talk to anybody. I just went to the recruiter and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in looking into what we've got and came back and everybody was super happy with it because, you know, our family's really close and everybody was really happy with it until they realized that we would all be moving away. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. But yeah, no, we just, um, I knew that I needed to do something and I'd always grown up. My parents were, my mom did 20, almost 22 years. My dad did 21 years and always having that just kind of in the background of, um, you know, that's something that is, is there. It's something that was stable. You know, I was young at the time as I knew it was stable and it was, it actually interested me before it never did. And as I wasn't able to play hockey, um, you know, long-term, it was something that I could provide the family, but also it's something that I could do. And um, the service part, I think was probably the 50, 50, you know, serving wasn't the, Oh, I want to go serve. It wasn't the original design, but man, I'll tell you within months, I mean, very quickly, I think probably, basic training graduation, we've um, brought down my grandfather's flag who served as well. Uh, and that kind of hit, uh, hit a note with me about the ability to serve. And that became kind of the overarching. Everything else was secondary to that. So that was wow. pretty interesting. Where did your grandfather serve? Um, he was in World War II and mm -hmm. Korea. Um, and Which theater of was, World War II? He was in the European theater. Mm -hmm. And so he does. And in fact, I really need to go back. I've got some of his old patches to look up. Because uh, I have just, we have a really long lineage of, of service. Um, and my dad has all of this. My dad passed away 10 years ago. So I really need to go raid his. He has a whole books full of all of kind of, okay, here's the units that they served in. So that's mm -hmm. one of the things that's on my list next time I go to see my mom is look up kind of all of our family lineage of all the places they served in the units. Because he was an army, army guy. Um, and so I, I just, I guess I really haven't paid attention to the last bit of army, but he was, um, he was an army guy and served in uh, Vietnam, or not Vietnam, I'm sorry, Korea and uh, World War II. Wow. And then, so you have your own uh, wartime experience too, and, and the timing of your joining the military in 2001, was that before or after September 11th? It was before September 11th. In fact, I was in training. Uh, I was a, um, oh, what did they used to call us? The, the yellow rope guy, but I was a, uh, like a, basically a squad leader for our training group. And um, I had a new group of trainees and um, I was looking around to all the other, all the other leaders and they were leaving the room really quickly. And 
So I, I left the room and walked in. And I remember I walked into the back room of, uh, we were doing our training at the chapel there at Lackland Air Force Base. And I walked into the back room and right as the second, I mean, I watched the second plane hit the, hit the towers. And I was just like, I couldn't, you know, the really the only thing that I'd kind of grown up with in Alaska was during the eighties, obviously the cold war and stuff, always worried about the nuclear attacks being kind of the front end of Alaska and then a little bit of desert storm. Right. Um, but man, this was like, Oh, this is, it got real, really quick. Let's put it that way. So you're in, uh, you switch over, you go from uh, working on F-16s then to flying helicopters. Uh, what was the training process like at Rucker? Was it a difficult transition for you to start uh, flying helicopters? Um, you know, it, I think it's no matter how good or how much you do in the outside, it, it's a little difficult. I think the funny, the funny part was actually, um, when I came over from the Air Force, the Air Force basic training wasn't good enough, quote unquote. And so I had to go to this warrior transition course. That was my first experience in the Army. It was the warrior transition course at Fort Knox. Uh, only to find out, it's four weeks essentially of accelerated basic training, only to find out two weeks in we weren't supposed to be there because we were just supposed to have gone straight to locks. It was me and another Air Force guy. Um, you know, I, I studied quite a bit and, and, and worked hard. The family gave me a lot of leeway to, to do it. So it's definitely, it wasn't super crazy hard but it definitely by no means was easy uh, mm -hmm. at all. Right, yeah, I can understand that. Uh, and so you've flown different kinds of aircraft. Do you have a favorite kind of aircraft and what makes that one special? Oh man, that's a good question. I, uh, I may have to break, it's like asking favorite movies, you know, I have to break that up into a little bit of categories. Sure, I, yeah, go through, go through your top three then. Yeah, helicopters are just, there's just something about them that I, it's just hard to explain. Every type of flying is amazing, but there's something about a helicopter that making your mind work in all three axes and, and the, the planes and aerodynamics that are involved. I just, nothing quite, nothing quite challenges them. But the Blackhawk, I flew Blackhawks uh, for the majority of the career. And I just love, I've been through um, an Alpha model Blackhawk, which is the kind of the original blocks of them, uh, the Lima and the Mike model. And for me, the Mike model, uh, Blackhawk, which is glass cockpit, and it's got a lot of situational awareness tools, um, but you can still fly it like an old school helicopter. That was just to me one of my favorite, one of my favorite things ever, and I would I would fly that thing. It was amazing. Uh, the what Blackhawk's you, a really amazing, capable aircraft. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. What do you mean by these oh, no. uh, situational awareness tools for all these non-pilots out there? So, yeah, okay. So the old what we call them steam gauges. You have. Uh, like an attitude indicator, airspeed indicator. They're just old dials like you would see on a dashboard of a car. You know, they tell you how fast you're going or how high you're going. And that's, you kind of get used to a certain type of scan and a certain type of information off of those. And it's really, it's analog systems. Well, with the development of the mic model, it is all digital systems. So instead of looking at these old steam gauges, I'm looking at TV screens, essentially. And um, you're getting information there, but now I'm getting, things like moving maps and now I can put other air helicopters on my, you know, my other, uh, other helicopters that I'm flying with me on those moving maps. I can do over the horizon communication. So I can basically text back and forth with, uh, and so those kinds of things where, you know, if I go into an environment where before I just kind of have to map it all out before I went, <clears throat> excuse me, for where the enemy threat is and carry that map with me. Well, on the mic model, I can plot that threat on a map that moves with me and say, oh man, I'm, I'm in this area or I need to avoid this area. Uh, it was just really, the situational awareness was just so much better 
for what you could do. Plus, they added fully coupled autopilot, which, you know, in, in a bad situation where I accidentally go into the clouds, you know, if I'm not ready for that, I can get myself back to an area where I'm a level and then I can use the autopilot to kind of help bring my focus from very narrow to very wide. I can, it, it, it makes for a lot better, it really makes for a lot better situation. And actually, I think it makes for better pilots situationally anyway. So that one was one of my, uh, that, that right there is, is very up at the top. And now flying the civilian side, it's, it's hard because I fly an Airbus for Frontier Airlines and that isn't just absolutely incredible aircraft. Um, I'm a big tech nerd. So the technology in that aircraft and the ability to fly, uh, that thing is just amazing. And maybe it's partly because I went from flying 11 passengers in 22,000 pounds max in a helicopter to uh, upwards of 200 passengers and hundreds of thousands of pounds. So uh, that's part of it. Um, but yeah, so the Airbus is up there. And then I fly the King Air now for the Army, which is a C, uh, it's a C-12 is what the Army calls it. But the King Air turboprop is is probably right now my second favorite. It is a lot of fun to fly and it gets you kind of back into those basic airmanship flying skills where it's not, it's just enough automation to really get you in trouble. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so what kind really of an aircraft is that? What kind of an aircraft is that C-12? I know the, the Blackhawk is like a utility uh, aircraft used for a lot of like uh, air assault operations. What would a yeah. C-12 be used for? So there's different kinds. So the C-12 that we use in my unit is that we're a VIP unit. So we're configured for passenger carrying. So transport category aircraft. Uh, so depending on the configuration, you know, anywhere from five to seven people in the back, we carry a lot of uh, VIPs, generals. During this COVID time, we've been carrying a, a ton of people uh, just to help them not have to go commercial travel. Oh, wow. um, but we're passenger carrying primary. Uh, and so we do that. Um, that is our, our number one. That's our mission set. There's other ones that have uh, platforms that allow them to do um, area reconnaissance and so ISR platforms things like that but we don't we deal with just the VIP sections very cool and so would that be maybe your honorable mention besides the Blackhawk or did you have another aircraft in the amongst helicopters that you like to fly I mean I like all the helicopters the uh, the 206 was really really fun which is a, the jet ranger essentially it's a really fun uh, and then, the, you know, old school Alpha Charlie, Kiowa, essentially. Uh, but yeah, the Blackhawks easily, I think by far is, it's just so capable and it's so nimble for a, you know, greater than 60 foot, 20,000 pound aircraft. It's so nimble, the things you can do with it. And we've done some pretty, I've done both the medevac role and the air assault. And we've done some pretty interesting, interesting missions on both sides and we put it into some pretty tight areas that you wouldn't think you'd be able to fit that size of aircraft. So yeah, right. that's far and away my favorite, my favorite thing to fly. Yeah. Did you have a favorite call sign? I know that's something that pilots tend to uh, be able to have a little more leeway on than, than the ground troops. Did you have a favorite one? So, you know, it's a little more, uh, I, I'm really torn between two mainly because Flying medevac, dust off is obviously the, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, being able to be part of the dust off legacy and the community and the call sign uh, and what we did not only deployed, but when I was in, when I was uh, back in the garrison, uh, I was stationed in Alaska with the med there and we were a civilian medevac for interior Alaska. So we were doing real world missions there as well. And something about being able to go in, you know, somebody, you know, deployed, you know, somebody's hurt, you know, somebody needs you and being able to just go and go in. You don't really, uh, I know everybody talks about thinking about the risk, but you don't really, as pilots, you don't really think about the risk to us. We train 
but we just go. I mean, we know somebody, our brother or sister is on the ground, it means us, and we just go. We don't really think about the rest of it. Uh, that, to me, is always, I, mean, I hold that near and dear, that dust-off call sign, because it really just has such a, you know, there are books written specifically about dust-off, and it, it has that connotation that we are coming for you regardless. I mean, I think that that's something that I really hold near and dear to my heart. And then probably second was our hard luck call sign. Uh, we all kind of laughed when we went to theater as an aerosol unit. You know, one of the call signs we picked up was called hard luck. And it's like, I don't know about this call sign, man. That's a, that's a pretty interesting call sign for an aviation group. Um, but it actually, we, we did so many amazing missions and had so much camaraderie amongst our unit. I think that hard luck, I pretty hold that pretty dear with uh, the Black Widow, you know, um, 4th Battalion, 159th that I was there with. You know, I think we all kind of hold that. It was a tough deployment, but it was a really, um, it was a really good deployment as well. Yeah, hard, hard luck does seem weird because pilots are notoriously uh, superstitious, right? Did you have any lucky socks you always had to wear when you were flying, or what was that like? No, I don't. Uh, I always love the quote from uh, Michael Scott on the Office, where he says, "I'm not superstitious. I'm a little stitious. Um, I don't really have the superstitions, um, but yeah, it's it's definitely super." it's super prevalent in the, in the community of, Oh, I'm going to wear these, you know, this same thing. Now where you find a lot of us, um, when we don't have helmets, we wear ball caps a lot. So aviation is a big thing about, it's just kind of always been around where you have this special hat that you wear or, uh, yeah, I think that's something that really falls in. So hard luck was kind of an interesting, was an interesting addition to the superstitions. Yeah, definitely. So during this Duffstoff mission, this medevac mission, you're medically evacuating soldiers from the battlefields. What was the frequency for you? Was that pretty constant throughout your deployments? Was one deployment a lot more frequent than another? Yeah, we, um, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag for an aviator anyway. You always want, especially when you deploy, it's kind of the validation of the skills you work on back home. And so you always want to fly when I go, when I deploy, I always want to fly and I always want to validate those skills. However, in desktop, you don't really ever want to fly. I mean, you really never, you always hope it's a training flight. Um, and so, but yeah, when we deployed to Iraq, we were based headquartered in Talil and then we were um, based over four different bases, Diwania, Gary Owen, and um, Al Kut. And so the frequency was definitely more than you want it to be. And we got there kind of right after the surge kicked off in 2007 and they widened the bases a lot. They expanded the amount of people in a lot of these bases. Um, when we got to right around the time we got to, uh, to the deployment, and so we we flew enough. Let's put it that way. I, you know, I always say we we flew enough to keep our skills going. Um, you know, we were there, I believe, when Strike first got there, the hundred um, first, and they really had a very rough. Uh, they they had a very bad deployment. They lost a lot of people had a lot of casualties. And so there was areas where when we were flying, you know, we would definitely be in a lot more than others. There's areas that we knew, okay, this is going on. We're probably going to get called. Um, and so we did a lot more flying than we really wanted to or really thought. And I think we ended up, I can't remember how many hours I specifically flew, but it was definitely, you saw every bit of the battlefield. The, the worst part about it, I think for a lot of us is the, you kind of expect small casualties, uh, small arms fire, things like that. But the two things that really hit home most of us is IEDs explosions really, really ramped up quite a bit in 2008, 2009. Um, so you're, you're, 
always wanting to hope that you can get there and, and let your medic be able to tend to people and, and have a chance for that survival. But a lot of times you're getting called and, you know, because it's an IED, there might be, you know, you're, you're going to put somebody who's not totally together back on the plane and, and, and your medics are going to go to work on them. And we had some, some of the best medics I've ever, ever seen in my entire life mainly because they did a lot of paramedic work in Alaska, um, saved some people that I thought, man, there's no way. And we, we learned pretty quick that as pilots, you try not to look back um, just because of, you're not, you're just not, that's not what we're, our job is, what we're not used to seeing. But the ones that hit home, I think really is a couple times during the deployment, I remember we responded to accidents where we had vehicle rollovers. You know, I remember distinctly um, one of our units out of d a a good friend of mine responded, and they, um, a Humvee, a former Humvee had rolled over off of a bridge and ended up upside down in the water. And they spent 45 minutes trying to feed surgical tube, trying to, trying to save the guys in the Humvee. Uh, and it, it wasn't successful. And that, those are the things I think a lot of guys take home with them is that where we couldn't do something for somebody. Um, right. and, and it's, you know, it's not a cost of war type of scenario. And so those are tough, but um, yeah, we definitely did our fair share of missions. And you noticeably more in Iraq 0809 than Afghanistan in 1112. Yeah, Afghanistan is funny. So I left the medevac uh, and went down to Fort Campbell. I left the medevac the last went to Fort Campbell, gearing up to deploy as an air assault pilot. And the medevac that I was just recently in um, actually came as our medevac. So they were attached to us. And yes, uh, that was busy as well. I know Afghanistan was quite busy. Um, and we also had an Air Force uh, unit there. Um, the pararescue guys were there as well, and they were busy as well. So, yeah, the Afghanistan, I wasn't in the medevac, so I don't know as far as what their load was. I know we flew a lot more as air assault side, um, but I do know those guys did some pretty – in fact, they, they did a huge rescue on one of our own pilots um, who, was, who took around through the leg, uh, Kevin Howie, and they actually came and, and really took awesome care of him and medevaced him out. Um, when that happened. So they were, the medevac's always great. It does not so In this situation, a, a pilot got shot while he was in the air or someone was on the ground? Yeah, he was on the air. He was in the air um, flying a right seat that day and, and was going in to pick up uh, another round of troops. And they had some high power, 762 rounds were getting shot off at the aircraft. And this one, just magic bullet, basically. It went, went between all the armor, between all of the radios, between the seat and, uh, and hit him in the leg. And um, so, yeah, so he tourniqueted himself and, and ended up the, we call him a PI, but pretty junior pilot um, stepped up. I mean, it just kicked, his training kicked in, stepped up, took the aircraft over and uh, recovered and flew back and got, we called the medevac and had the medevac meet us, meet him there. And uh, kind of, it's, it's, you never want to see that happen, but watching that training really take effect for such a junior guy. Uh, you know, he's a young captain and very, very junior on the sticks and just did a phenomenal job and um, took the aircraft right over and, and successfully got him medevac out. So, yeah, that's incredible. It is a testament to how your training can really help you when those situations are so tense that there's no time to think. You just have to go off of instinct. Right. So speaking about that training that these military pilots get, you're involved now in an organization that helps veterans to transition to flying fixed wing. It sounds like you've done that yourself, right? So you're, you're flying commercially as a pilot now. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you found out about this organization or how you helped to start it? Yeah, so our tag, um, and I guess we're coming up on close, closing on three years 
or just over two. I can't remember. It all blends together. But uh, myself and a guy named Eric Sabaston, we um, who we were all both actually at Fort Rucker together. He's done Medivac as well. Um, has a great book about dust, his experience in Afghanistan called Dust Off Seven Three. It's fantastic. Um, you know, I had already done the transition. I had looked into, done a little bit of research, and had no real reason I wasn't nothing negative in the army. I, I was in the, probably the best command working as part of the best command I'd ever worked uh, with and for, and just, you know, kind of felt it was time to maybe do something a little bit different and looked up, researched a bunch of this stuff, American airlines and really put the footwork into this, what they were calling RTP rotor transition program. So in 2013 or so the FAA changed some of the rules and they removed the word fixed wing out of some of the training requirements. And so what that meant is now, instead of having to have all of these hours in only fixed wing aircraft, you could count a lot of your rotor time and then just had to do certain things in fixed wing. And so the airlines coming up on this huge deficit of pilots getting out and really lower hiring over the last decade said, hey, we, we could really take these rotary guys that have military experience, use a lot of that uh, knowledge, that decision-making ability and the quality airmanship and said, Hey, well, let's, let's give them some money to entice some military rotary pilots to come in. We'll help build a pathway and then they'll come into a regional. So my friend and I were the first two hired at Piedmont airlines under their rotor transition program. Um, they gave us some money to finish up whatever training we had to do in the fixed wing side. And we started with them. And so we had this page for information on Facebook that Eric Sabaston had started. And I was one of the original guys in there and we had a group of people that were talking and needs to say the army wasn't super keen about potentially somebody saying, get out of the army. So <laughs> they had a conversation with Eric. He was concerned that they might try to do something and say, you know, you can't have this page anymore. So I just said, Hey, why don't I just volunteer to start, you know, to, I'll just take over that. I'm, I was already out of the time and, and um, it worked out that way. And then we had started kind of this admin messenger group. I'll, I'll applaud social media for this. It does a great job. But we had this back-end messenger group. Uh, and the group got so big that we thought, well, why don't we just make a broad place for information so that we could kind of create a company. We really weren't thinking of a company, but a place for information. And so we started that. And it, it blew up. So you're on the message board. Uh, it really started to uh, attract more people to it. How many uh, people did you end up uh, putting, connecting with this training program? I believe 2018 was our first event in Savannah, mm -hmm. Georgia. And we had done a lot of research. We'd put it out. We went from original group of 100 people on this Facebook page to when we went kind of public with it. Um, we're sitting at over 12,000. I think we're close to 13,000 now. And it was mind-boggling how quickly it took a life of its own in a really good way um yeah that's incredible are these all military aviators or are there some people who are just they're fans of the organization and they want to help veterans to transition to being commercial pilots so now we have we're getting into the realm of uh more there's definitely more fans and more people that want to help um but the vast vast majority um are military aviators or they're military members who have, you know, we, we have a draw as well where we bring them, we have a, what we call E2A, but, you know, maybe it's somebody who was an admin person or as a crew chief, but we've worked with all of these different vendors and different people to help them uh, use their GI Bill to transition, to get their pilot's licenses and stuff and go into, uh, go into 
aviation as a civilian aviation as a pilot, but we also have mechanics routes too, where a lot of these places need mechanics just as bad and we're help, you know, if you're a mechanic or maybe you're an admin person and want to help, you know, want to get in the aviation side. So really it's all jobs in aviation transition people from the military into those jobs. Okay, I understand. So it's not just pilots. That's good to know that there is that ground side involved as well, that maintenance side. Yeah, and the maintenance has really been a big need that uh, this, the civilian airlines have really needed and they are, uh, nobody really filled that need until we came along. Mm -hmm. And so we, yeah, we started, we did a lot of research. We actually asked, we knew we wanted to go nonprofit. So we said, hey, we're going to start a GoFundMe. You know, we really need $2,000 to get legal fees and things like that to get this done right. And within, I think we funded it within, I don't even know, I want to say like seven hours or something like that. And those original members, we joke and call them the wolf pack, but uh, they, you know, people just stepped up and, and gave a couple dollars here and there. And we went immediately and got our nonprofit, which we, our lawyer did such a great job. And the, we did, I really feel we did such a good job in defining the organization that when we got a nonprofit awarded, which we actually technically got it awarded to us this year, in March of this year, they retro dated it all the way to date of inception. So people are, anybody who's given us money is able to go back and all the companies are able to go back and file amended tax returns and do the charitable nation. So that was really, really cool. But we did this first event thinking, well, if it doesn't go well, we'll just be a Facebook group. And uh, we made these packets and it was just a group of us. And uh, we had this, one of our original um, group, Lindsay, who is phenomenal. Um, she did a ton of work on making these super professional packets, anything what you might expect if you're going to kind of a career fair. And it, we thought if we have 150 people show up, that's a huge win because that's what all of the big airline, like there's a place called FAPA and other places where they do these career fairs, where they have anywhere from 100 to 200 people show up. And we thought we're just starting out, 150 people would be amazing. Well, day of the event comes, we've got the, um, I think it was the 8th Air Force Museum in Savannah, Georgia, rented out. And we had 750 some odd people show up. Wow. And That's incredible. We realized really quickly, uh-oh, <laughs> we just stepped on a landmine. Do you have any events coming up? Uh, so this will be released in a couple weeks. So you probably expect to uh, be listening around the beginning of December. Are there any events for RTAG at the end of the year in 2020? Uh, well, no, as, as you might I guess with the COVID the, situation is probably tough for that. Yeah. Uh, really, really messed us up. But uh, we don't have anything left this year. We did just actually on Veterans Day. Um, one of the things that we wanted to do from the very beginning is we wanted to build scholarships for people. Uh, and so, you know, we not only don't take any money as the board members, but we, um, you know, we've spent most, most of this has been our own money to keep our functions running so that we could give 100% of our donations out. You know, we feel really strongly if somebody donates money to us, we don't want it donated to my pocket. It's more of a donation through us instead of to us. Um, so it's kind of, you're donating to us to give people to ch hopefully change their lives. And so, you know, we've been able to, through our merchandise store and a couple other partnerships, been able to fund all our super low overhead of, you know, all the normal things, paying for an email and things like that. But, um, so we just were able to give away, uh, over $76,000 of the scholarships on veterans day, um, which Amazing. was incredible. It, it was as humbled, humbling for us to be able to do that. And then we also announced that next year uh, we have two events. So we have Fort Hood. We're going to be in the Fort Hood area in April, obviously, you know, COVID and, and crazy world dependent, but 
Um, our plan right now is to have a Fort Hood event, a one-day hiring fair, and hopefully that will hopefully a lot of the airlines and a lot of the other carriers will be out to do that and to start uh, meeting with the people again, maybe an outside event. And then our big announcement was we are taking our stuff to the, taking our talents, if you will, to the West Coast. So nice. we are, we've been growing so heavily with the Marine Corps, the Navy and the Air Force, which kind of just started a huge grassroots in the Army side. But um, we've found a, a real home with all the military members. And so we are actually going out to San Diego, California in October of next year. So we, uh, and then, then the more firm dates are going to be set up as we get closer as we kind of firm things up. But yeah, October of next year, San Diego, California, and um, April of next year, uh, Fort Hood. Those will be our two big events. And then we're going to work to do some, we've had some talks about maybe a virtual 5K or something like that to raise money, but also do something fun for the community. And, and we're also looking to do some local, uh, maybe gear up with local veteran companies or charities and to do, you know, something in the local communities in each of these different states or where people, we have such a great, ability to help our local communities because we're spread out over the U.S. where, you know, our tag can give back to the, in a small way, you know, maybe it's volunteering to serve at a food kitchen or go over to the, the veterans areas and, and help veterans, uh, disabled veterans and things like that. So that's, that's the big things coming up in 2021. That's outstanding. It sounds like you got a lot of different things working. Uh, we encourage everyone to go check out Rotary 2 Airline Group, our tag. Uh, any last shout outs you want to give to anyone before we sign off? Well, rtag.org is our website, and then you can just pretty much search rtag on Google, and, and we come up, you know, and obviously, I, I'm the vice president and co-founder, and we uh, have a board member for Eric, Jim, and Tim, uh, We do, and we have, you know, uh, my wife actually helps uh, work with the spouses, because one thing we learned from the Army is that, you know, you're only as strong as your family is, and so you know, she does an incredible job at our events. We have tables set up specifically. And her and a couple of the other ladies talk about the transition and what it's like and, what it's, and try to just try to help. Um, and then, you know, we have a guy named Louis Fay who just crushes it for us on the, on the engagement side to get these, actually get them. He's kind of our grunt. So like he does the work in the trenches for getting these events rolling and he just does so much work. And, you know, all of the people that have really, it's four of us kind of end up being in the face sometimes, but this is because the community is you know we, we hope to have you guys out to the event the next event you know and you'll see every time somebody comes to our events we've had a helicopter industry you know at first was a little kind of off kind of keeping us at a distance um but we've had a lot of helicopter vendors come to our events and they're you know they tell us we're never not coming it's just such a it's it's such a brotherhood and community and almost like a fraternity that when everybody comes together it's so powerful because our community really is out there to help people and uh, we love each other and that's what we want to do is make a difference in people's lives. So that's a big thing. I, I love this organization. And I, I, I can't wait to see what happens in the future. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Everyone go check out our tag. Joshua Lee, thank you so much once again. Have hey, a good thanks one. Thanks so much, man. Yep. I look forward to working with you guys too. Talk to you soon. Thanks again for all of you out there for listening. As always, you're welcome and encouraged to find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by following at HeroHut.org. If you want to help expand the reach of the Hero Hut, consider sharing this podcast with a friend. And we're always interested in discovering more stories of service, so send any interview recommendations to info at HeroHut.org.